Thanks, Michael and band. Hey, uh, I think this is the last sermon in a nine-month mini-series that I have entitled uh, Jesus Everywhere. And it's, it's been great for me because I've been able to preach on a bunch of passages that have always sort of fascinated me and then revisit some that uh, have kind of blown my mind in the past. You know, St. Paul wrote this, that Jesus descended and ascended that he might fill all things. Wow. Even this? So, Lord God, in the name of Jesus, under the authority of his blood, we take authority over any spirit of suicide that would tempt us uh, to, to disobey you. We bind it in the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit and command it to leave. And, Lord God, now I pray that you would minister to those that are tempted to suicide. I pray that you would minister to those that are in bondage to a suicide in the past. I pray, Lord God, that you would speak your mercy into all of us and help us to trust you in even the worst of all places. In Jesus' name, amen. Matthew chapter 27, verse 3. When Judas, his betrayer, saw that Jesus was condemned, he repented and brought back the 30 pieces of silver to the chief priests and the elders he said, I have sinned by betraying innocent blood, innocent blood. But they said, what is that to us? See to it yourself. Throwing down the pieces of silver in the temple, he departed and he went and hanged himself. He hanged himself. But did you catch that, that line in verse 3? He, he repented. Immediately prior to this, Peter repented. Peter hears the cock crow. Jesus looks at Peter, and Peter goes out and weeps bitterly. Judas hears that Jesus is condemned. Judas looks to the priests, saying, I've sinned, and they say, well, take care of it yourself. And Judas does. 
Peter was repented and he wept. Judas repented and he hung himself. Hung himself on a tree. That's something to think about. Before Jesus is hung on a tree, a school on, outside the city walls, Judas hangs himself on a tree outside the city walls. In other words, before Judas can see the judgment of God, Judas judges himself. Judas is full of himself. And so tries to judge himself and so destroys himself. In Genesis, in the Hebrew, we read that Adam is made of Adamah, that is clay or, or dust. Scripture testifies that, that each of us is an earthen vessel, but an earthen vessel full of earth, I mean, full of itself is just a pile of dirt. Peter was full of himself, but, but Peter was emptied by grace through tears. Judas repented and issued his own judgment. He emptied himself with himself, which is only more self. And Luke records that Judas went to quote his own place. His own place. He trapped himself in a prison of self, a prison of self, making himself a, a, a stranger. Trapped himself in a prison of self, making himself a stranger to the kingdom of God, the new Jerusalem. See, I think the, the chief problem with suicide is that it doesn't work. You can't kill yourself with yourself, it's only more self. And thus you trap yourself in your, your own place, your, your own place, the outer darkness where men weep and gnash their teeth. Matthew 27, verse five, he went out and hanged himself. In, in Acts 1.18, Luke clarifies, now this man acquired, this man Judas acquired a field with the reward of his wickedness and falling headlong he burst open in the middle and all his bowels, his splogna, gushed out. This became known to all the residents of Jerusalem so that the field was called in their language hakeldama, that, that is field of blood. He acquired a field. So he must have like hung himself and then falling his bowels gushed out. But, but he acquired a field. How did Judas acquire a field? Back to Matthew chapter 27, Matthew explains. Throwing down the pieces of silver in the temple, Judas departed and he went and hanged himself. But the chief priests taking the pieces of silver, said it is not lawful to put them into the treasury since they are blood money. After conferring together, they used them to buy the potter's field as a place to bury foreigners, skenos, strangers, that is people who do not belong in the city. People who do not belong. For, for this reason, that field has been called the field of blood to this day. Then was fulfilled what had been spoken through the prophet Jeremiah, and they took the 30 pieces of silver, the price of the one on whom a price had been set, on whom some of the people of Israel had set a price, and they gave them for the potter's field as the Lord commanded me. This is a picture of the potter's field that I took about six years ago. On the left is the Kidron Valley coming down the east side of Jerusalem. On the right is uh, 
the potter's field at the base of the valley of the sons of Hinnom, which runs up the, the let's see, the, the west side of Jerusalem. The potter's field is kind of that enclosed area uh, over kind of on the right where there's now an Orthodox monastery. I'm standing on the south side of Jerusalem near an area that used to be known as the Potsherd Gate, uh, standing above that valley of the sons of Hinnom. And Jesus in the residence of Jerusalem in his day called it Gehenna. That, that's from sons of Hinnom, Gehenna. In ancient times, the valley was used as like a waste dump for Jerusalem. In Jeremiah's day, Israel slaughtered children to foreign gods in this spot. It was a place of death and consuming fire which contained this field of clay, the potter's field and the potter's house. In the valley of Gehenna. And Gehenna is often translated hell in English Bibles. So Judas hung himself on a tree in hell. Ugh. That's terrifying. And Judas is terrifying. He's called the son of perdition, which means son of destruction or son of the lost. In fact, St. Paul, the only other place that term is, phrase is used in the Bible, St. Paul uses it for the Antichrist. And Judas is also called the devil. At the Last Supper, Satan entered him as he went to betray Jesus. <laughs> and yet, you know, Satan also spoke through Peter. Remember that? And Judas isn't the only one that's lost. In fact, Judas looks in, an awful lot well, like the other disciples, kind of almost like everyone else. I mean, you remember uh, the night that he betrayed Jesus at the Last Supper when Jesus said, the hand of my betrayer is on the table with me, and they all looked at each other and, and said, who is it, Lord, who is it? Is it me? In other words, they didn't know who it was. Judas did not have like 666 tattooed across his forehead. In fact, it was actually kind of just the opposite. He was like the paradigm, the model of, of the good Jew you know, the name Judas comes from the word Judah, as does the word Jew. All the disciples were called uh, Jews. However, Judas appears to have been the only one that may, may have been from the, the province of Judea, and he had the closest ties to the priests and to the temple. Judas represents the Jews, and the Jews represent Israel. At the destruction of the temple in Jeremiah's day, also in 70 AD, they buried countless bodies of, of Jews in the valley of Gehenna, the potter's field. Well, Judas represents the Jews. And in case you're feeling a little anti-Semitic, let me remind you that Jesus also represents the Jews. So you see, um, Jesus and Judas appear on the surface to have a lot in common. Jesus is the lion of the tribe of Judah. This is wild, but no one may have been, no one may have looked more like Jesus than Judas, and yet no one may have been as anti-Jesus, anti-Christ as, as Judas. So, so get this, it's, it's not like Judas didn't really admire Jesus. I mean, we just read it. He repented when he saw that 
Jesus was condemned. It appears that he really admired Jesus, and it was because he so admired Jesus that he set out to to use Jesus. He tried to use Jesus to serve a cause that he had judged to be the good. You ever done that? Have you ever used Jesus to try to obtain something that you have judged to be the good? Wow, what if Jesus is the good? Well, I'm just saying, Judas betrayed Jesus, but, well, we all betray Jesus. Especially us religious types. Listen to um, uh, the, the word that gets translated betrayer. It's the, it's the word paradosis, that's the noun in Greek, or parodidomai, that's the verb. It's normally translated deliver or, or hand over. So it appears throughout the Bible. In fact, St. Paul writes this For I received from the Lord what I also delivered, parodidomai, to you, that on the night Jesus was parodidomai, betrayed, same word, he took bread, saying, Take and eat. Just by delivering the word to the Corinthians, Paul says he, he, he did what Judas did. And isn't it our sins that hand Jesus over, that deliver Jesus up for crucifixion? You see, maybe we have much more in common with Judas than, than we ever imagined. For 2,000 years, Christians have made Judas the scapegoat. And for 2,000 years, Christians have kind of made Jews the scapegoat. Sometimes we make suicides the scapegoat. I think Jesus would say to us, look, you, you want a scapegoat? I'm your literally goddamned scapegoat. You don't need any other scapegoats. But Judas, Judas really was a terror. I mean, people, according to anthropologists, people define scapegoat as someone on which other people place their sin to feel better about themselves. We make him a scapegoat, but, but he had plenty of sin himself. I mean, Judas really was, was a terror. Judas killed the Christ with his unfaithfulness, his sin. And then Judas killed himself. Judas judged himself, last and least, judged himself a, a stranger. You know, Jesus said, I was a stranger. Whatever you do, the last and the least of these you do to me. So Judas murdered the Christ, then he murdered himself, which was murdering the Christ again. I mean, he really is like the chief of sinners. What does God do with the chief of sinners? In Dante's Inferno, from the 14th century, Judas is relegated to the lowest level of hell, where Satan eternally gnaws on the body of the three great traitors, according to Dante, Cassus, Brutus, and Judas. Judas in hell. What a picture. And then consider this. Jesus chose Judas. Satan possessed, or, or at least inspired Judas, and Judas betrayed Jesus. All in fulfillment of prophecy. All according to God's almighty plan, God's judgment. 
that's terrifying. So here's the question. Can we trust God's judgment? Honestly, I think maybe that's the only question. Can we trust God's judgment? Can we trust God's judgment or should we seize judgment and make our own judgments like Judas? This is a picture of my Aunt Joycey. Always catches me when I look at her because she looks just like my little sister, Rachel. I, I, never, I never met her, but I have heard about her. She struggled with depression and then alcohol. A counselor said she needed to live alone, so my dad did not insist that she come home and li live with him. He, he really loved her, and then one night, she took a whole bottle of pills, fell asleep, and never woke up. My dad, like I've told you, really was like the best picture of Jesus that I've ever seen or known, and yet he, he really had a hard time speaking hard truths to people he loved. I remember several conversations with him when he'd say, but Peter, I can't say that to him. I can't say that to her. I can't say that. I mean, what if they, what if they kill themselves? Many of us are, are terrified to speak the truth. Terrified to speak the truth to those we love for we're terrified of the potter's field. Terrified to speak truth and yet Jesus is the truth. Hebrews uh, 2 tells us, through the fear of death, fear of the potter's field, Satan keeps us in lifelong bondage. This is a picture of some of my youth group kids in Los Angeles from 1986. The one kind of in the lower right-hand corner uh, I told some of you about before, I think his name was Billy Baldridge. And Billy Baldridge was really like, seriously, the poster child for Peter Hyatt Ministries. Just an in incredible kid. I judged myself a success because of Billy Baldridge. About 10 years ago, I got a call. I was 16 years ago. 15 years ago, I got a call and a man told me that Billy went for a walk out at UCLA, found a garden in the courtyard, sat down on a bench, reached into a paper bag, pulled out a gun and shot himself in the chest, dead on the spot. When I heard that, I immediately judged myself a failure. I felt terror for Bill and, and I felt terror for me and, and I desperately wanted to quit. I mean, I just wanted to quit preaching the gospel, quit trying, quit loving, quit ministering. I just wanted to die. This is a picture of my old friend Tim Brewer met him in, in high school. I always wanted to be like Tim. He was a couple years older than me. So I judged myself with Tim. And so check this out. I, I judged myself with Tim, which meant I, I, I really admired Tim, but I don't think I, I loved Tim very much. You see, for, for I competed with Tim in my heart, which means I fed on Tim. So any weakness in Tim kind of fed my ego. Isn't that weird? We do that with idols. We set them up and then we tear them down. Tim was a great guy, youth, youth director. He was the youth director in California before I took his old job back in the 80s. 
And then he was a senior pastor at Central Press out in St. Louis. Awesome preacher, tons of fun, great guy, a wife and three little kids, a couple of them handicapped. Several, several years ago, he went home alone early from vacation, went inside, wrote several letters, then went out to the car in the garage, ran a hose from the exhaust pipe uh, inside the window, turned the ignition on, and asphyxiated himself. In his suicide letter to the church, he wrote this. Out of the countless sins I have committed in this life, it is my own wretched weakness of which I am most ashamed. Now, I don't know everything that was going on with Tim, yet I suspect he was being emptied, you know, like an earthen vessel. You ever felt like that, like you're just being emptied? But he didn't surrender the emptiness. He despised the emptying and broke the earthen vessel. Like Judas in the potter's field, he, he judged himself. It is my own wretched weakness of which I am most ashamed. And yet St. Paul wrote, I will all the more gladly boast of my weaknesses that the power of Christ may rest upon me, that the grace of God might fill me, that the life of Jesus might fill me like red wine in a, in a clay jar. But Tim was terrified of the emptiness. And I probably contributed to the terror because I felt the same terror. It's the fear of being emptied, being empty. This is amazing, I think, but, it, but it's true. Some people kill themselves because they're afraid of death. They're so afraid of death, they, they, they kill themselves. So afraid of surrendering control, they seize control, take their life rather than surrender their life. Someone said, Suicide is just our way of saying to God, you can't fire me, I quit. <laughs> but if scripture's correct, one day everything will be fired by God. Even if you do quit, God is fire. God is love, love is fire. I suspect it was that fire in Jesus' eyes that emptied Peter that night. God's judgment is grace and it empties us of our judgment, which is pride. But Judas hung himself on a tree in hell. Peter wept, and Judas hung himself on a tree in hell as he was destined to do, as if he was chosen to, to choose hell, as if he was like consigned to disobedience, and that's terrifying. I mean, the potter's field is terrifying. And so because of the potter's field, I think we're terrified to speak the truth. Because of the potter's field, I think sometimes we're too terrified to preach the gospel, too terrified to die, and thus too terrified to live. And terrified of hell, we're already stuck in hell. Or hell is stuck in us. I mean, maybe hell is like my own judgment. And so how could I ever trust God's judgment if, if I'm stuck there? How can I judge God's judgment good? Well, that would take like an infusion of something, like, like, like a miracle. Anyway, 
back to the potter's field, terror. I mean, think with me, because I think there are some things that we know, and yet there are some things we know that we don't know very well. Things we know that we don't know very well. Number one, I don't think we know freedom and sovereignty very well. We don't know what, what freedom is. We think freedom is like a random choice between two things, like root beer and Sprite at 7-Eleven, right? But in Scripture, freedom is choosing the good, and is choosing the good without deliberation. I mean, if your good choice is hindered by the temptation of a bad choice, well, then it's really not a free choice. According to Scripture, we're all slaves of sin. That is bad judgment. Slaves of sin until Christ makes us free, and he is good judgment. And, and, and here's a fascinating thought. Who's most free? Judas or Jesus? Judas chose to make Jesus his enemy. That is bad judgment. And Jesus chose to make Judas his friend. Remember that? He called him, he called him friend. Greater love has no man than this. He laid down his life for, for, his, for his friends. Well, well, anyway, who gets his will, his choice, his judgment? Who gets it in the end? Judas or Jesus? Who is called the end? Judas chose to get lost, and Jesus chose to seek and save the lost. Who gets his choice? Who gets his will? Uh, Judas or, or Jesus? Jesus, the word of the creator. Hey, what if the creator freely wills that Judas would freely will the creator's will in his own image? Does the creator get his will? Well, anyway, number one, we don't know freedom and sovereignty very well. Number two, we don't know time and eternity very well. We don't, we don't know time. Scripture tells us, and now science also tells us that we really don't know time or the times. Like I told you recently, ion in Greek is, is a noun meaning ever or age or eon. And ionios is the adjective that often is translated eternal. And it refers to of the age or another age or God's age or God's time in Scripture our time, chronos in the Greek, is chronological time, chronological time. Chronological time has a beginning and it has an end. And scripture says Jesus is the beginning and Jesus is the end. Revelation, the great angel says, chronos will be no more. That is, there will be a last day in time, which means forever has a beginning and an end, because what is that line of time? That's all the ever, right? That's forever with a beginning and an end. So forever is all of time, and yet forever comes to an end in Jesus. Forever is that timeline. And yet before, after, below, and above time is eternity. That is no time, or maybe the fullness of time, or God's time, but not simply our chronological time. So think hard with me, okay? If something is forever destroys, what does that mean? 
Well, it means that something has appeared on that timeline and then disappeared from the timeline, destroyed for the rest of time, forever destroyed. But how could something be eternally destroyed? For time exists in eternity. So if something is eternally destroyed, it means it never existed. You only thought it existed, like a, like a shadow or a lie, a kingdom of lies. It, I mean, if something is eternally destroyed, it either never truly existed or is eternally transformed, uh, like, you know, darkness filled with light, or, or lies that get filled with truth, or nothingness that fills with somethingness, evil flooded with good, or sin transformed by grace, or, or death transformed by eternal life. I mean, maybe temporal things can be destroyed by eternal things, but only if the temporal things are really no things or if the temporal things are transformed into eternal things. Now, I'm telling you, that is just a crazy thing to think about, isn't it? Our brains can't do it because they're stuck in space and time. And yet, you know, lots of temporal things get destroyed by eternal things and then show up eternal in Scripture. Like Sodom. Remember? It's destroyed by eternal fire. And then it shows up eternal. Ezekiel chapter 16. Like Jerusalem. Like Sodom. It gets destroyed. And then it comes down eternal from the heavens. Like Israel and Judah in, in, in the prophets, God gives them up to utter destruction, and yet, quote, all Israel will be saved, Romans eleven twenty six. All the dry bones will live, Ezekiel 37, 11. Although they were rejected, cut off, and enemies of God, they are blessed, beloved, because of election, Romans 11 writes Paul. So in the very place that they were called not my people, they will be called my people, Romans 9. Like Sodom like Jerusalem, like you. For this mortal body must put on immortality, and this perishable body must put on the imperishable, and then shall come to pass the saying, death is swallowed up in victory. Oh, death, where is your victory? Where is your sting? First Corinthians chapter 15. I'm just saying, we don't understand time and eternity very well. And we don't understand, number two, empty and full very well. According to Scripture, now according to even some physicists, what seems full is actually empty, and what seems empty may in fact be very full. So we think matter is full and spirit is empty. But maybe spirit is full and matter is empty. We think earth is full and the heavens are, are empty. Uh, kind of uh, like that. But according to Scripture, the heavens are full and the earth is empty. Like light is full. And under the earth in the darkness, it's empty. And under the earth in Scripture are the graves and the tombs. Under the earth is, is death instead of life. Darkness instead of light. Lies instead of truth. Shame instead of glory. Under the earth is, 
is Hades, often translated hell. And, and now check this out. Hades exists on the timeline, for it is destroyed by eternity. At the end of the revelation, death and Hades are thrown into the lake of eternal fire and, and death is no more. And according to scripture, at the end of time, this earth is to be flooded with that fire, eternal fire, eternal life, light, and truth, filling death, darkness, and lies, transforming this old, empty earth into the new heavens and the new earth, the finished creation. Anyway, remember that Adam is made of earth, right? Adam is made of Adamah, the, the clay. And so Adam reminds me of this earth. We think Adam is full. We think that we are full and the air around us is empty. In biblical language, we think flesh availeth much and the spirit availeth little. But scripture says the spirit availeth much and the flesh availeth little, uh, kind of like this. See, according to scripture, we are like empty and the kingdom of heaven is at hand. According to scripture, we're like empty, but in God we live and move and have our being. I, I could say we are empty or I could say we're full of ourselves. We're like earthen vessels full of earth. That is, earthen vessels full of our own judgments, our pride, our, our judgments, our darkness, lies, and death. Our judgments are sin. And so number four, we don't understand Hades or hell. And number five, we don't understand sin, which means we don't understand ourselves. Sin is Hades taking root in the earthen vessel we call ourselves. Such that we become an earthen vessel full of earth, that is full of ourselves, that is full of our judgments rather than God's judgments, and our judgments are illusions. They are death, darkness, and lies. And God is life, light, and truth. Life, light, and truth burns death, darkness, and lies. And so our old self, our old self experiences God as wrath. In other words, we are all vessels of wrath until God empties us of our empty judgment and fills us with good judgment and that good judgment is, is grace. When God bursts our bubble and fills us with his judgment, which is his choice in us, his faith, hope, and love in us, then we are finished in the image of God. And that happens at the cross. And it is a miracle. God empties us of us and fills us with himself. Jesus Christ and him crucified is the judgment of God. And so now check this out. Hades exists on the timeline. See the blue line there at the bottom? And I, I also exist on the timeline. See, see me. Hades comes to an end at the final judgment. 
I come to an end when the end comes to me at the cross. I come to an end and receive eternal life and then the second death can't hurt me for my heart, my, my splogna, my, my bowels have already passed from death to life. And so I, I don't hate God's judgment. I delight in God's judgment. In other words, I have faith in grace, God's judgment. I am a vessel of mercy. But what if, like Judas, I never see God's judgment? And so I never believe God's judgment. And so I judge myself, trap myself in my own judgment, my place that is hell. Or what if I reject God's judgment all my, all my life, die in my sins and thus die in my judgments, trapped in my judgments in the potter's field in the valley of Gehenna? What if I make myself a ghost, imprisoned in death, darkness, and lies? What if I, what if you, what if you do that? Well, then I guess you are without hope. For you have received your wish. You have your own place. And you have made yourself an enemy of God. You have no hope. But that does not mean that God has no hope for you. Number four, we don't understand hell. Number five, we don't know ourselves. And number six, we don't know who God truly is. God is the potter, and we are the clay. Matthew said that all these things fulfilled what was prophesied by Jeremiah. And by mentioning Jeremiah, he probably means all the prophets as well. But in chapter 18 of Jeremiah, God tells Jeremiah to go watch the potter at his wheel. As he's watching, the, potter's, uh, the, the pot is messed up in his hands, spoiled in his hands on the wheel, and the potter remakes it. And then God says, oh, Israel, can I not do that with you? Repent. In chapter 19, God commands Jeremiah to take an earthen vessel, go to the valley of Hinnom, Gehenna, and publicly smash it in the potter's field, saying, so will I break this people and this city as one breaks a potter's vessel so that it can never be mended. And yet then, in Jeremiah 31, Jeremiah prophesied a new covenant, a new city with new boundaries, new boundaries that include the valley of, quote, the dead bodies, for it will be holy. Gehenna will be holy, writes Jeremiah, and never, ever, ever overthrown again. Then as Jerusalem is besieged by the Babylonians, God instructs Jeremiah to buy a field, for he has, quote, the right of redemption. The field is a sign that Jerusalem, though it is to be forever destroyed, so it cannot be mentioned, will be rebuilt so that it cannot be destroyed because, quote, nothing is too hard for God. The Bible ends with a vision. St. John writes, Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, and I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, adorned as a bride for her husband. She needs no light and has no temple. For God is her light, and she herself is his temple. She's a vessel of glory, the glory of God. That's the new Jerusalem, and yet the old Jerusalem, 
was utterly destroyed in 70 AD and the bodies were buried in Gehenna. Well, Zechariah, who prophesied after Jeremiah, was commanded to shepherd the flock, quote, the flock doomed to slaughter. The high priest paid Zechariah 30 pieces of silver for his labor. Now Judas throws 30 pieces of silver into the house of the Lord, and Matthew quotes Zechariah almost word for word. The Lord said to me, writes Zechariah, Zechariah, throw it to the potter. The price they set on me, says the Lord. Zechariah eleven thirteen. So I took the 30 pieces of silver and threw them into the house of the Lord to the potter. You see, God is the potter. Romans 9, where Paul quotes, you know, uh, the prophets, and he talks about vessels of wrath and vessels of mercy and all the scary verses that freak everybody out. He then asks, is there injustice on God's part? And, and, and Paul answers with this question. He says, has the potter no right over the clay? So, so we don't understand the potter, and we can't comprehend all the potter's judgments. Scripture says so. Number seven, we can't comprehend all his judgments, but we can know his judgment for his judgment has known us what can we know Jesus God's judgment is Jesus his will his word his choice Jesus is God's judgment on all of our bad judgments. Our judgment was to break his earthen vessel, his body on the tree. And, and when we did, life, light, and, and truth poured out, love poured out. He is a vessel of mercy, the vessel of mercy, which is God's judgment. You, you, I, I was just thinking about this past week. I, I, I'm, I was a geology major, so I like maps and stuff. And I looked on a topographic map of, of old uh, Jerusalem, and, and I realized that Jesus was crucified, whether it's at uh, the one side or the other, he was crucified at uh, the, the northern end of the Hinnom Valley drainage. That means that his blood flowed from the cross down the valley of Hinnom into, down Gehenna to the potter's field, his blood. And nothing is as powerful as his blood. It is unquenchable love, it's fire. He is God's judgment. He is God's will, God's choice, God's word. He is how God gets things done. He speaks the word and creation happens. And Jesus, he fulfills the moral law, he fulfills the sacrificial law, he fulfills all justice. He has borne our griefs and carried our iniquities. He is our scapegoat. Judas is not your scapegoat. Jews are not your scapegoat. Arabs, terrorists, atheists are, are not your scapegoat. If you're looking for a scapegoat, Jesus says, look, I am your scapegoat. You don't need any other. Jesus fulfills the moral law, the sacrificial law, even the little details of the ceremonial law. Even through Judas, whom he called friend or, or comrade. Check this out. Judas goes to the temple declaring that Jesus is innocent. Just as the priest is to declare that the spotless lamb is spotless on Passover. And this is Passover. 
Judas cast the money into the temple. Money for the temple treasury was to be used for temple construction. And this blood money was used for temple construction. Through Judas's bad judgment, God worked his good judgment. Through Judas and the priests, Judas priests, I guess, through Judas priests, the potter purchased the potter's field in which were buried strangers. The potter builds the new Jerusalem with strangers redeemed by his blood. That's what the new Jerusalem is. So anyway, there are many things we know that we can't know very well, but we can know this. Number one, God's judgment is Jesus. Number two, God's judgment is good. And number three, the potter's field does not belong to Satan. That's huge. Do you get that? The potter's field does not belong to Satan. Th think about this. 30 pieces of silver, the price designated for a slave, and God made himself a slave in Jesus. Judas throws the 30 pieces of silver into the temple to the potter, then hung himself alone on a skulong, a tree in a field, and then fell, uh, he fell headlong, broken open like a, a clay pot that cannot be mended. He fell into Gehenna, the, the field in Gehenna. But that very day, that field was purchased, purchased by the one who had, quote, the right of redemption, purchased by the potter for 30 pieces of silver, blood money, whose blood Jesus blood it's the field of blood God's blood the potter's field purchased by God with the blood of Christ Judas fell into that field Gehenna does not belong to Satan Gehenna belongs to God and God is the potter you know, if clay is wet, it can be reformed on the wheel. It happens to us all the time. As God, like, makes cavities within us, he shapes desires and longings and hopes uh, within us in order to fill those empty places with himself. It happened to Peter. If the clay dries, the pot must be broken if it is to ever be Remade, broken so it cannot be mended, but, but shattered, it turns back to clay. And then the potter can make a new pot. I mean, maybe that happens to Judas. Even if the clay is fired in a kiln, and, and you know, um, uh, potters use kilns to fire the clay, and Gehenna is a place where Hades meets the fire. Even if the clay is fired in a kiln and then shattered, in the presence of water, the ceramics will eventually turn back to clay. It just takes eons. So maybe, perhaps, Judas is still trapped in Hades in this eon. But if Judas judged himself a stranger, didn't he also judge Jesus a stranger? And whatever we do unto the least of these, we, we do unto him. So perhaps Jesus is with him as a fellow stranger. In other words, a friend. If I make my bed in hell, even there his right hand will hold me, writes David. Perhaps Judas is still trapped in Hades in this eon.
Perhaps Judas is forever destroyed in this eon, but that doesn't mean that the potter cannot make him eternally new in the next eon. Uh, or perhaps Judas was not lost for an eon. Perhaps Judas was only lost for, for like a few hours, for only a few hours after Judas hung himself on the tree and descended into hell, Jesus hung on a tree and descended into hell. And yet Jesus didn't only descend, he also ascended, leading a host of captives free, writes St. Paul. And maybe the name of one of those captives was Judas. 1 Corinthians 15, verse 4, St. Paul writes this, that Christ was buried and raised and that he appeared to Peter and then the 12 and then 500. He appeared to the 12. You know, Jesus made a lot of promises to the 12, remember? He's looking at the 12, those guys saying, you 12 will sit on 12 thrones, judging, judging the nation, stuff like this. And, and he appeared to the 12 before Judas was replaced by Matthias in Acts uh, chapter one, before Judas was replaced by Matthias and after Judas was hung on the tree. I mean, it sounds like Jesus appeared to Judas in the potter's field. And we don't know exactly what happened. We don't know exactly what all of that means, but, but this is a good question. What does God do with the chief of sinners? Do you remember who also called himself or did call himself the chief of sinners? That's what St. Paul called himself, chief of sinners. And he said Jesus appeared to him as one untimely born. Karl Barth makes this brilliant argument for pages and pages in his dogmatics that, that Matthias was actually not God's choice to fill the vacated office of the 12th apostle. It was Saul who we know as St. Paul, that old Pharisee transformed by grace. I just think that's incredible, but, and we don't know exactly what that means. We don't know exactly what that means for the historical Judas, but God turns Judas's into St. Paul's. That's like his, his glory or something. I don't know exactly what that means for Judas. I don't know exactly what that means for my Aunt Joycey or for Billy Baldridge or for Tim Brewer, but I do expect to see him again because I do know this. Number one, God's judgment is Jesus. Number two, God's judgment is good. Number three, God has purchased the potter's field with the blood of Christ. And number four, Jesus said, behold, I make all things new. And so number five, we must no longer fear the potter's field. So all you Dan Hyatt's out there, Speak the truth. Speak the truth. Speak the truth not with doubt, but with faith. Oh, you Peter Hyatt's out there, preach the gospel, not constrained by fear, but constrained by love. All you Tim Brewers out there, surrender your weakness, not in shame, but in hope. Oh. God, I know that feeling of being so emptied. I just want to break the vessel. Don't break the vessel. Surrender the emptiness. Uh, surrender the emptiness, not in shame, but hope. Unafraid to die and therefore unafraid to live. All you children of Adam made of the Adam all. God is the potter. And you are the clay. So surrender your judgments to his judgment.
You can't judge yourself with yourself. It's only more self. Suicide won't work. It will only make things worse. You can't kill yourself with yourself. It's only a prison of self. And so if you truly want to die, and I think all of us somewhere deep inside really want to die. <laughs> That's why we drink so much. That's why we do the things that we do. I mean, we just want to sh shut that chatterbox off, right, that Dan talked about last week. If you really want to die, if you really want to truly die so that you can truly live, only the potter can do it. And he empties you with grace. And he fills you with grace. It was grace that taught my heart to fear and grace my fears relieve. Grace is his judgment. He empties you and he fills you at his table. You see what I'm saying? We have all been as Judas. We are all vessels of wrath. But the potter is shaping us into vessels of mercy. What I'm saying is that this, see that? This chalice, this earthen vessel, is you. And this is what you are made for. And so I deliver to you what was also delivered to me that on the night Jesus was delivered up to the hands of men he took bread and he broke it saying this is my body given to you take and eat and do it in remembrance of me and in the same way after supper he took the cup and he said this cup is the new covenant in my blood pour it out for the forgiveness of sins in Jesus' name, believe the gospel. Amen. And so, Lord God, together we say this to you. In fact, maybe you can just pray this in your heart. Pray, Lord God, I surrender myself to you. And now would you fill my old empty self with you. You are the potter. You are my potter. And I am the clay. So we invite you to come to the table, tear off a piece of the bread, the dark cups are wine, the light cups are juice. They are both the love of God poured out for you. Amen. Hey, how many of you have ever seen a potter make a piece of pottery? Just raise your hand, okay? When I was a kid, they put me in pottery class or something. And, and it was kind of amazing to me because you know, the potter takes 
the clay and, and then they like, the first thing they do is they like beat the clay. They just beat it, you know, smashing it down and punching it and everything. And, and, and then the potter, um, oh, you're, where'd you get that? I didn't even know that was up there, but that's what they do. And then the potter like takes it and puts it over a wire thing and cuts it and they, and they chop it up and then they put it back together and they, they beat it some more. And if you were watching that, you would think to yourself, the potter hates that clay. Why is he so mad at that clay? Why does he hate the clay? He just beats the clay up. And then if he's beat it up a long time, he does this. He like punches his hands into it and starts gouging out the inside of the clay, taking, making empty spaces in. And did you ever feel like like that like God is just like plunging you God what are you doing he's like scouring you out inside and just when you think okay we're done we're done I get the point then he puts you on a wheel and spins you around the potter does that spins the clay round and round and I mean do you ever feel like that like life is like you're just spinning around on this crazy wheel and then you think at last it's done and he puts you in an oven <laughs> right Right, and, and turns up the heat, turns up the heat and fires the clay. You know, my daughter just returned from this archeological dig in Italy, Becky did, and they found chunks of ceramics from like the Middle Ages, right? And below that, there were chunks of ceramics from like the Greeks and the Minoans and thousands of years ago. You know, when you fire clay, it's like the very chemical composition of the clay changes. It becomes as close as we on earth can know, um, eternal. Well, anyway, you watch that process and you think, God just hates that. I mean, can you imagine being the clay? Well, you get my point, right? You are the clay. And, and now you may have asked yourself this crazy question. Yeah, but how do I know the potter is making something good? Well, I just watched you come to this table and take this fluid and put it in your pot. <laughs> Do you understand? He's making this a vessel of mercy, a bride about to be filled with the life of her groom on her honeymoon night, <sighs> a dead body about to receive a blood transfusion, a temple being prepared the entrance of glory himself that's who you are so have hope don't break the vessel don't break the vessel have hope and if you know someone that has broken the vessel well the potter is is pretty amazing so you just trust the potter in Jesus name amen